0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by Blue Pineapple Travel and ITL Coaching and Performance. This is George, Patrick, and I appreciate your joining with us once again, uh, downloading the podcast once again, and listening to us. Uh, this is the bi weekly, midweek research podcast that we started doing recently here. So, a shorter one where we focus a little bit more on research that has grabbed us over the course of the last short while here. Uh, today, you're going to hear Patrick talking about the uh, the release of the 2017 Strava data and all the various things that we can learn from that. Uh, and then I'm going to share with you a couple of pieces of research, one of which is related to uh, the shape of the peloton in cycling and some research as to why it is that they tend to form that diamond shape. Um, and another piece of research about stride width and iliotibial band syndrome, the relationship between those two things. Uh, Before we do that, I want to mention a couple of quick things to you. First of all, I want to tell you about a race coming up on the 15th of December. It's the Viking 5K. You can read more about it at www.theviking5k.com. It's a 5K road race, and it supports the athletic program at Lakeside High School here in Atlanta, Georgia. Lakeside High School is where we do our Tuesday morning track workouts uh, and they have been very gracious to us over the last several years and we formed a really good relationship with them um, and this is a race that ITL coaching and performance puts on that manages to raise money for the athletic programs there. So we were able to add bleachers to the stadium uh, a couple years ago as a result of some of the money we raised uh, from the Viking 5k among other things. So uh, we do ask you to uh, go to www.theviking5k.com uh, see that race, sign up for that race. I will tell you this, Masters winners and overall winners get turkeys or hams, their choice, uh, that can go on various holiday tables. Second thing I want to tell you is that the March of Holiday Gift Guides is continuing. (laughs) Uh, You know, I I had mentioned that, that we unwittingly actually put out our holiday reading list or our gift guide um, at the front end of all these gift guides that have come pouring out here. And so I wanted to share with you uh, three quick ones here that, that came across my radar this week. Uh, the first one is from a blog called A Foodie Who Stays Fit. Now don't confuse that with Fit Foodie. That's a different blog. Um, And so it took me a minute to find this once I kind of got wind of it. But uh, Peter Ray, who of course we interviewed a few months ago and who we've talked about a whole lot over the course of the last little while here, uh, he shared on his Facebook page um, this gift guide from A Foodie Who Stays Fit. Um, And she titled it, the blogger titled it, Five Gift Ideas for Runners You Haven't Heard and They Haven't Received. Um, And so of course I was interested to read it. Number one was uh, Race Bib Coasters. Uh, she linked to a company that will actually make coasters that you can put under your drinks uh, to save your tables. Uh, made out of your race bibs. And so if you have races that you're particularly proud of and you don't want to get rid of the number or you want to memorialize it in some other way, you can make coasters out of it. Uh, That's one. The second one is hiring a massage therapist or PT or something like that, paying for somebody to get some of that. Uh, Third one is hiring a running coach, which is one that I can certainly get behind, Um, uh, paying for a month or two of somebody's running coaching. I would say kind of as an offshoot of this one thing that I saw was that um, that you can now according to um, or on Strava you can now actually give or gift um, the premium Strava membership called summit membership to Strava um, and so I would I would offer that as an offshoot to her saying hire a running coach um, the fourth thing was a particular device called a hyper rice hypervolt. Um, and the Hyperice Hypervolt is this uh, self-massager that, it's expensive, it costs $350, but it pulses at about 40 beats per minute, um, and it basically just pummels your muscles uh, really, really, really hard, and evidently loosens them up in the process. And so, by all means, check out one of those. Uh, and then finally, and this is the reason why Pete Ray shared it on his uh, on his Facebook page, she suggested a running camp or a running retreat, such as the ones that they host up in uh, in Blowing Rock, North Carolina, uh, and she mentions Zap Fitness by name when she said that. So I think that's a great idea, and and by all means, I endorse that too. Um, another gift guide that I saw was called "Unusual Gifts for Ultra Runners" for from Ultra Running Magazine. Uh, they had five suggestions as well. Their first suggestion was a Theragun, which is not unlike a Hyper Rice Hyper uh, which kind of does something similar. It's a little bit cheaper and seems to be a little bit uh, less. Um, uh, precise, advanced, whatever you want to say there, um, but it still involves beating on your muscles uh, at a very high rate, uh, and hope- hopefully, ideally, loosening them up. Maybe we'll talk about that in a future, uh, a future podcast research piece. Um, they also mentioned second an ultra pocket hat a hat that actually has pockets in it because if you don't want to carry something on your person why not carry it in your hat um, third was a Japanese rice cube maker um, rice balls are kind of a common staple food in ultra running they can settle down your gut a lot um, and you'll find recipes for rice balls in a lot of different uh, cookbooks by and for ultra runners um, but there is a Japanese rice cube maker that says that making them in cubes is better because cubes have more structural integrity and will hold up mo- more and better over the course of a long run. Uh, the fourth thing was what's called an Ampy, and this thing was kind of cool. Um, an Ampy is basically a battery that you can plug your USB device into, so it's a battery that you can use to charge your cell phone, just like any other battery that you can buy to, to charge your cell phone, like a like a fuel rod or something like that. Um, but the Ampy is charged not by plugging into the wall, but rather by the motion of your running. So you can attach it to your person, you can attach it to your hip when you start running, you run for a while it charges the ampy. your phone goes dead you can then charge your phone using the ampi pretty cool particularly if you're an ultra runner who's going out and spending hours upon hours upon hours on the trails um, and then finally this one's kind of gross um, there was something called snittens which you might be able to guess by the name is a pair of mittens that are specially made to use to wipe your nose um, and they say that 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 uh, one side of it, the palm side, is good for drying tears, and then the back side is good for drying snot thus the name Snittens. Um, they do thankfully make it kind of mucus colored there, so you can't really tell when you're wiping all the snot. Um, but according to their marketing materials, they say that it can hold 24 times its own weight in bodily mucus. So good to know, particularly if you're a heavy snotter there. Uh, final uh, gift guide that I'll mention to you comes from Alex Hutchinson, which I got a kick out of because we had mentioned you know Alex Hutchinson as somebody to read on our book list. He came out this week with his own book list um, that he's suggested of various things that you might want to buy for folks on your holiday list. Um, he described his book list, quote, uh, eclectic mix of books that I particularly enjoyed this year that have also have some sort of connection with the general sweat science vibe, along with a few titles that I'm still looking forward to tackling here. So, uh, unquote. Not all of those then were about running or about um, um, about endurance sports necessarily, but nonetheless, some some interesting things here. Um Number one was the, he had 10 of them. Number one, The Nature Fix by Florence Williams. Number two, The Hungry Brain by Stephen Guyonet. Number three, On Trails by Robert Moore. Number four, Alone Against the North by Adam Schultz. Number five, Let Your Mind Run by Dina Castor. Um, one that was on our list as well, and one that that everybody I know who has read that book has very much enjoyed it. Uh, number six, Into the Silence by Wade Davis, uh, which is looks very interesting, actually. It's about uh, people who climb Mount Everest um, and about some of the first climbers at Mount Everest. Number seven, String Theory by David Foster Wallace. Don't be uh, intimidated by this. It's not about string theory and physics. It's about tennis. Uh, Number eight, Fates and Furies by Lauren Groff. Um, Lauren Groff is a sister of Sarah Groff, Um, Sarah Groff's married name is Sarah True, and we've talked about her a couple of times on this podcast as well. Collegiate runner who is married to Ben True, um, who is a world-class 5K runner um, and Olympian from the United States. uh, Sarah True, who finished fourth in Kona this year. Um, uh, Her sister wrote a piece of fiction, Fates and Furies, that Alex Hutchinson said kept him up later than he wanted to be for a full week. Running is My Therapy by Scott Douglas is his number nine book. Um, I didn't know Scott Douglas had another book out, and so this one's definitely going on my list. Here, running is my therapy, and I look forward to reading that. Um, I bragged on Scott Douglas a little bit last week. Uh, and number 10, a general book, he's kind of going old school with this one The Power of Myth by Joseph Campbell. The um, Power of Myth has been out for a long time. Um, if you consider yourself an intellectual person you haven't read The Power of Myth, you need to get to it here. Um, but uh, I read it probably 20 years ago. Um, and it's fascinating and interesting and thoughtful uh, and it's definitely worth your time. So uh, I did think it was interesting that Alex Hutchinson came back to that going old school there with the power of myth. Um, one other piece of news that I wanted to mention to you that I actually forgot this past weekend. When I don't have Patrick around, I, I tend to forget the pieces of news. And one piece of news that I did mention, uh, forget to mention here that I wanted to, to make up for here at the outset, um, and that is about uh, the cross-country, high school cross-country championships are going on right now. Um, for years and years and years from about 1979 until uh, about 2004 uh, the sport of cross-country was the only sport in the United States, high school sport in the United States, that had a true national championship. Um, Now, it wasn't a publicly funded national championship. It was through Foot Locker. Um, Initially, when it first started in 1979, it was called the Kinney National Cross-Country Championships. And then over time, about the mid-1990s, it became known as the Foot Locker uh, National Cross-Country Championships. And uh, runners could run in regional meets, and then they would qualify for a a national meet. And then uh, the national... National champion in cross country would be crowned. It's a very prestigious meet that's been around since, like I said, 1979. I ran it when I was in high school. If Patrick was here, I'm sure that he said he ran it as well. Um, we ran the regional meet, not the national meet. Didn't qualify for the national meet. Um, well, in 2004, Nike stepped into. Uh, this game, and they started what they called Nike Team Nationals. And Nike Team Nationals was supposed to give teams, really outstanding teams, a way to compete for national titles as well, because Foot Locker was entirely an individual race. Um, but slowly over time, the Nike Team Nationals became, or Nike, Cross, or Nike Team Nationals became Nike Cross Nationals. Now it's NXN, Nike Cross Nationals. Um, and just in the last couple of years, they've essentially opened up qualification for individuals to the Nike Cross Nationals that very closely mirrors the way that individuals qualify for Foot Locker Nationals. So you can still go to Nike Cross Nationals with your team and it's still a team competition at Nike Cross Nationals, but there's an individual competition as well. And so now we no longer really have in cross country a true national high school championship because we have Two championships, both of which kind of compete with one another. And so, if an individual wins Nike Cross Nationals, can they say, Oh, I'm the champion nationally? Well, there's also a Foot Locker national champion. Um, And would that you could run them both, but you can't. Um, As a matter of fact, the South Regional here in Georgia was, or here in the Southeast, was uh, in North Carolina the Saturday after Thanksgiving um, for both. Nike Cross Nationals and for Foot Locker. Um, they were almost going on at the exact same time. The Nike Cross Nationals uh, was in Charlotte, I want to say, or Kerry, uh, and Foot Locker was in, it was in Charlotte, where it's been for the past 20 plus years. Um, and so, individual, good individual runners basically had to decide well, I do I want to run Cro- Nike Cross Nationals or Foot Locker Cross Nationals? So, anyway, Nike Cross Nationals, the national meet, um, it's held in Portland, and it was this past weekend on December 2nd. Caitlin Tui from New York who we've talked about a lot on this podcast before. Uh, she won the girls' race by a lot going away, um, and she broke her own course record in the process running sixteen thirty seven. 37 uh, One of the interesting things about her is in the post-race interviews, she started talking about how she wants to target the Olympic Games in 2020. Now, mind you, she's only a junior in high school right now in late 2018, and so she's looking at, you know, as a newly graduated, as a would-be freshman in college, hopefully going into uh, uh, uh the Olympic Games in 2020, and either she says the 1,500 or the 5,000 meters. So we'll have to see about that. We'll have to keep an eye on that. Um, Liam Anderson from California won the boys' individual title. It was just under 15 minutes. Um, the Loudoun Valley High School Vikings from Purcellville, Virginia, won the boys' race. They were repeat champions, and it might be the first time they've had repeat champions there. Certainly first time in a while they've repeat champions there. Um, a school from Bend, Oregon, won the girls' competition, uh, Summit High School, the Summit High School Storm, uh, won the girls' competition. Now, Foot Locker, their championships are this weekend. Um, they're going to be on Saturday, December 9th, and so we will keep an eye out for how those turned out. But remember, of course, they they are individual championships only. So, As we get here into research, let me remind you that if you want to reach out to me and ask me questions about the research or anything else we're talking about here, you can find me at george at itlcoaching.com. If you want to reach out to Patrick and ask him about his research or anything else, patrick at itlcoaching.com, or you can send a general email to the podcast at pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. Enjoy hearing this research this week, and be sure to join with us on Sunday when we talk about the California International Marathon, the Philadelphia Marathon, and the Vaporfly 4%. On with the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. This is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Patrick Ollinger, also an endurance coach and
1: athlete here in Atlanta, Georgia.
0: It is time for our biweekly Thursday research podcast, and we have a couple of things to share with you, uh, Patrick. You got the first piece of research to share, even though yours is kind of like not really a piece of research. Well, I guess it kind of is. Tell us about it.
1: Yeah. So Strava just released its year-end review report for 2017, and as most folks know, um, Strava is this you know ubiquitous app and social media platform that connects about 36 million active people around the world. Um, a lot of our runners use it. A lot of our cyclists use it. You know, uh, it's really been a huge platform within our ITO group and really the running community and the endurance community at large, um, to kind of come together and, you know, not just track their own individual workouts, but also to kind of connect with other people and other endurance athletes. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, they just came out and released a year in review report for 2017 It kind of shows some summary data and some interesting findings from all the data that was uploaded to Strava in 2017.
0: There's 36 million athletes from 195 different countries around the world, and they logged in 6.67 billion miles in 2017. Uh, That's 15 million activities uploaded per week, or 20 uploads, 20 activities per second, 24 hours a day, 365 Mm -hmm. days a year. So. It's a lot of data. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, keep going. it
1: is, and and I mentioned about how it's it's big within our own individual, our own like ITL group, and a lot of our kind of close running friends and endurance friends here in the Atlanta area. You know, the Atlanta Track Club, Atlanta Tri Club, etc. Mm-hmm. But this is a global platform. Yeah. Um, you know, it, I mean, it, we have p- people uploading to Strava from all over the world. So it is a huge, huge kind of treasure trove of data. Yeah, it's it's, it's big in everybody's group. <laughs> right, right. It's big in everyone's group. I mean, okay. it's it's kind of the, the the Facebook for runners, so to speak, or you know, the eHarmony for runners, if you really want to go that far. <laughs> um, so I, they just released their report, and there were a lot of really interesting findings. And once again, it, it, it's we kind of touched on this in the the book podcast when we talked about how, quote unquote, back in the day, it, you know, when when once the runner was first authored. A lot of runners were kind of just running by themselves and didn't realize there was such a large community of runners out there. They were also, you know, taking on these crazy tasks and and training in the early mornings to to kind of, you know, build up their endurance and, you know, devote themselves to their sport. Strava has kind of blown that model, you know, out of the water because now we can come in, we can, you know, see all the different people that are also up in the morning running, cycling, hitting the trails, you know, running around their neighborhood and, and, doing all the things that endurance athletes love and that, you know, other people might find crazy or nonsensical. So it, it's really provided a, a great community of, you know, um, a, a great way to kind of bring people together and kind of see just how much, you know, other athletes are, de- are devoting to their sport and just how many different athletes there are out there.
0: Yeah. And, so and, there were a lot and, of. Re- you remember? You remember? Pete Ray actually talked about it when we interviewed him. He talked about one of the big changes he feels like, and one of the things that's caused a lot of improvement, not only in running in the United States, but in running worldwide, is that we're all so much more aware of what everybody else is doing now. Um, and and certainly Strava does that. I mean, you see somebody doing a particular workout, you're like, "That's a cool workout. That's an interesting workout. That's one I haven't seen before. That's one I haven't thought of before." And so, yeah, I think we're 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 so much more aware now of of what our our compatriots and our competitors are doing.
1: That's exactly right. And I've even done that before where I've seen someone's workout and then I'll reach out to them and say, you
0: know, what
1: was the purpose of this? Or like, what were you trying to train here? Right. And then kind of gain some insights from them. Right. Um, And and it's it's pretty fascinating. I'll also tell you too, I am reading the Emil Zadapuk biography that you gave me and recommended on our last podcast. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of interesting because in his biography, they even talk about, how he was the first person to train as intensely as he was. Mm-hmm. And other people just didn't even know that was possible to train that intensely. Right. And then once you kind of spread his methods, the overall running community got a little faster. Right. Because people didn't realize they could run that many intervals. So they didn't run, they, they didn't realize they could run that many miles in their training. Right. Um, so to just kind of circle it back there, um, it, it is, it has been kind of a wonderful tool to kind of bring people together and really you know spread a, a wealth of knowledge and, um, uh, among the different groups but i do also want to say this is not just for runners or cyclists but obviously i think there's about 32 different activities that mm-hmm. that Strava tracks. so why don't we dive into some of the more interesting findings shall we please all right so first and foremost this is the one i found the most interesting especially for our group and for our listeners um athletes who join a club you know one of the clubs that they offer in strava are three times more likely to or three times more active than non-club members hmm. Um, so to me, that's pretty interesting because, one, it, it makes sense that people who are dedicated enough to their, their sport to, like, join a club and, you know, affiliate themselves with a certain club, like our ICL group has a club, um, for example. They're going to be the ones who are also more dedicated to their sport and, or their activity the most. But I also think it does kind of harp on one of our big core training principles, which that is that it is always best to train together. You are stronger in a group than as an individual, Um, because groups can, you know, make you accountable. They can kind of see you through the drudgery of training and they can make sure that you wake up early and get in that run or get in that, that ride or that swim. Mm -hmm. So that was my first big, you know, interesting finding. Right
0: on. Uh,
1: the second part is, you know, when working out with a friend, not only did it, or when joining a group, not only were you more likely to be more active, but when working out with a friend, um, athletes tended to go longer and further in their sport of choice when working out with a friend than when going by themselves.
0: Cool.
1: So like if, if you were a runner, um, uh, more runners, you know, ran further when they were running with the group than with, you know, when they were trying to run solo. That's interesting. So that was pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. So, you know, another way to put it is, you know, training partners are friends with health benefits, so to speak. <laughs> uh, and then let's see here. Where's some other good findings here? Uh,
0: another I'll, one is I'll give you one that I liked. Um, I liked the one about the the naming. And so so kind of like what you're talking about that that uh, Strava will pick up on it when when you've run with somebody else. Um, but but mm-hmm. also you can you can name your run or your ride or your swim. You can give it your activity whatever name it is that you want to give it. Um, and and. Uh, as a matter of fact, I've said before on this podcast it's one of my personal rules that unless you change the name from the default name, that I don't give kudos to anybody on Strava. Um, and uh, and and they said, okay, so what are the po- most popular food in the activity titles? And for runners, the most popular food in the activity titles number one was beer, number two was coffee, number mm-hmm. three was cake, number four was cookie, number five was donut, and number six was pastry. <laughs> Um and then I, and then cyclist on the other hand the most popular food used in an activity name number 1 was coffee number 2 was beer so so coffee and beer were still the top 2 but they were switched number 3 was cake number 4 was donut number 5 was cookie and number 6 was pastry so literally the exact same six words are the most popular food titles in in activity titles on Strava for both runners and for people who ride yeah um there were 491,000 activities uh cycling activities that had the word coffee in the title. Uh and there were three hundred six thousand activities, three hundred six thousand runs that had beer in the title in two
1: thousand seventeen. <laughs> That's incredible. So
0: as as someone who has experience in both worlds, cycling and running. Right. Did you expect
1: that dichotomy or did you expect that breakdown? Do you find yourself craving beer after uh, a run and coffee after a ride?
0: No, but I will say this though. There 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 is very much a a coffee Coffee is much more of a culture inside of cycling, though, um, and, it's, and it, it's not only because people will literally stop at, co- stop at coffee shops in the midst of their rides and will have coffee and then continue riding, um, but just a lot of pros drink coffee. Coffee's been, been drank for years and years as, as, as just sort of part of what cyclists do, um, and so it just plays a much more prominent role inside of the, the, the cycling community than it does inside the running community. So, so yeah, I, I wasn't totally surprised by that. Interesting. I, I wonder I, if it
1: also I, has to do with
0: the, Go ahead. I was say, I wonder if it also has to do with the timing of the workout. So, maybe. You know, um uh what do you mean? Like like the time of day you complete the workout?
1: Yeah, so I know a lot of running groups meet in the evening after work. Mm-hmm. And so then coffee's not going to play as, you know, prominent right. of a role. Right. Um a, a lot of run groups do like a a run to the brewery type, you know, easy run.
0: Right. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then and then bike rides tend to be first thing in the morning because they're several hours long and you have to do them first thing in the morning. Yeah, it could be. Not sure. Um we should mention on this note, uh since we you know we had our book episode earlier, uh, that that there actually is a brand of coffee that's put out by Des Linden and her husband, um, and uh and by Sarah and Ben True. Um, Des Linden's husband's a pro triathlete. Uh, Ben True is a pro runner and Sarah True, uh, finished fourth in Kona. She's a pro triathlete this year. They actually have their own brand of coffee. I want to say it's called Linden True, but I'm not sure. It's something like that. Um, anyway, keep going. What else stood out from you from the Strava data? All
1: right. Uh, to me, the other interesting thing was the gender breakdown. So when looking at percentages, more women on Strava are running, um, uh, than taking part in any other sport. Yeah. Okay. So running is like the pri It's the the most popular activity among women. Mm-hmm. However, the total number of men running on Strava nearly triples that of the number of women mm-hmm. um, uploading runs on Strava.
0: Right.
1: So that, to me, was pretty interesting to look at. But even more fascinating, and this is something we've actually talked about a little bit before on this podcast, American women beat out American men in race participation. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think it was roughly like 13% versus 12%, mm-hmm. um, which really kind of backs up the findings from Running USA's annual road race report Mm-hmm. Which states that about 59% of all road race participants in 2017, mm-hmm. excuse me, are women. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty interesting. And even if you really dig deeper, too, according to Strava um, data, women participation in road races increased 28% in 2017. Oh wow! And we've talked about a few times on this podcast about how you know the the elite women on the American side are really where it's at. Like they're the exciting story in American distance running right now with Shailene Flanagan winning the New York city marathon in 2017. Uh, Des Linden winning Boston in 2018. I know that's after the year of this report, but I think there still is just, there seems to be a, a much greater increase in participation and much more excitement mm-hmm. in you know, female running or, or women's racing in America at this point. So I, I do wonder if there is some connection there. Um, one could argue that, you know, the kind of average, you know, hobby jogger is, is not as in tune to, you know, who's winning the elite field. So it may not have as much of an impact as I think, mm-hmm. but I do think there is something there to, um, I think there is some connection there.
0: It's worth considering. What are your I, I, I think it's worth considering. Um, you know very well that I always think that there's a link between, between um, uh, the back of the field and the front of the field. I, I, I think they're very reliant upon one another. Um, and so, so Agreed. yeah, I, 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 I'm certain that there's a link and it's worth pondering exactly what the link is. Um, Very good. Mm -hmm. Um, Another one that stood out to me was the most active days of the year. Did you see that one? Um, And perhaps perhaps the reason why it stood out to me is something you can appreciate. So globally, if you look at all 195 countries that that have people that that post to Strava, uh, the most popular date of the year of 2017, the most activities that got uploaded um, globally was on May 6th. On, Sunday, uh, uh, on May 6th, which was 2.1 million activities got uploaded on that day. Um, that was also the most popular day for people riding bikes. 1.2 million bike rides were uploaded globally on May 6th. And then runs, there were 766,000 runs that were uploaded on September 16th um, for some reason last year. I don't know why September 16th was so, so popular for running. But here in the U.S., the most popular day of the entire year to do any activity is July 4th. So for whatever reason, we feel very patriotic and part of celebrating our patriotism is going out and riding our bikes or running or whatever else. The most popular day of the year in the United States to ride your bike was July 14th. And you might not realize this, Patrick, but in addition to July Fourteenth being Bastille Day, it's also my anniversary. And so there were two hundred twenty-two thousand people on Strava in the United States who uploaded bike rides on my anniversary, undoubtedly in honor of my anniversary in two thousand seventeen, my tenth anniversary. Right. Um, and then, right. And
1: not not the tour sort of de France, obviously. Oh well,
0: yeah, obviously not. <laughs> um, and then the uh, the the. The most popular day of the year for running in the United States in 2017, and I submit that 2018 will probably be the same, was November 23rd. And November 23rd was Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Uh, So 170,000 runs were uploaded in the United States on Strava on Thanksgiving of last year. Um, And so I got a kick out of that as well. The United States loves its turkey trots.
1: Absolutely, and it, in Atlanta we definitely contribute to both of those, oh, yeah. you know, dates. With July Fourth being the most active running day not only in America but I, I would I assume in Atlanta as well with the Peach Tree,
0: mm-hmm. and then
1: of course we have a lot of people running on Thanksgiving, oh, yeah. um, Thanksgiving half and five K
0: for sure, for sure, very good. Um, Lots of right. lots of other things in the data. It shows that commuting is going up not only in the United States but around the world, which is super cool. Um, it shows that that the most popular activity that or the the, the most common activity in which people would include photos you might have seen is when they were snowshoeing. Only about 9% of people who did bike rides included a photo, and only 6% of runners included photos. Um, But 32% of all the snowshoeing activities on Strava in 2017, a full third of the, uh, the snowshoeing activities on Strava in 2017, had an accompanying photo. <laughs> um, uh, more women slightly upload uh, or a higher percentage of women upload photos than men do to, uh, to their activities, but it's only a slight one. It's 11% versus 9%, um, which is cool too. Uh, and then the last one that I'll mention here, um, and Patrick, you might have one more, I'm not sure, but uh, the last one I'll mention here is the most popular segment. Did you see this one? Um, Yes. So so Strava Strava breaks down the the various segments, and you can can try and run your best times on different segments and stuff like that. Um, The most popular segment, both in the United States and in the world, because it's here in the United States, uh, is in Brooklyn, New York. It's a 5K loop. In Prospect Park in Brooklyn, New York, right where my wife was this past weekend. This past week, as a matter of fact, um, in 2017, 98,503 attempts were made on this uh, on this this uh, uh, loop, this 5K loop uh, in Prospect Park. So it was run a total of 98,503 times by Strava users. Um, pretty incredible. <laughs> pretty cool. Um, very good. Um, yeah.
1: And, and along those same lines, it looks like uh, in terms of being the most active city, uh, Washington D.C. got that award. Right um, which Which anybody who's ever been to D.C. it's probably no surprise because that is a city where after work nobody goes home. Everyone goes to the mall or to a softball field or a soccer field, and is is playing something. It's a very young and active city. Um, and and if, quite honestly, and if
0: you visit D.C., you're going to go for a run because it's a cool place to run. Right. Yeah. Right. There's
1: and and in, in terms of people living there, honestly, rent is so high there. Most people aren't going back to a, a very lavish place. So a lot of folks instead of I, when I was there over a summer living and working, no one went back home because they're really,
0: you're they're going back home to a dump. cardboard
1: box and a, yeah. And a foldout chair. So it's like, right. well, we we'll might as well go to this beautiful mall and, and play softball or soccer or, or run around. Uh, my kind of last big takeaway, which I think is interesting is uh Strava's note about emojis. So if you want to <laughs> receive likes and comments on uh your Strava titles or your Strava workouts, include some emojis. <laughs> so Strava even states in their report when the when the right words are hard to come by, emojis get to the point.
0: Right? On. Which to
1: me is like I mean, god help us all if we start just communicating with emojis, but <laughs> you know, it was I, it makes sense because, you know, emojis do communicate warmth and humor in a way that maybe words don't, um, but I thought that was pretty interesting. And then, of course, the most commonly used emoji was the running man emoji, Absolutely. outside of a few exceptions. Um, for example, the state of Florida, the most common emoji was the bike emoji. Mm. Uh, in North Dakota, the most common emoji was the snowflake, which makes <laughs> all too much sense.
0: Yeah, for sure. Very good. I'll and then... Sh- go ahead.
1: And then I don't know what's going on in Vermont, but their most common emoji was a black heart.
0: So uh, I'm not
1: really sure what's going on there. Vermont, we, we love you.
0: <laughs> right on. Now, I, stay I'm, safe. I'm, I'm going to have to Google that and try and figure out. Well, yeah, stay safe. <laughs> I'm gonna try and figure out why that is. Um, I'll point out one other thing, too, that, uh, that they, they looked at the, the uh, total distance running um, and the average distance per runs. Um, and all that sort of thing um, the uh, the and the highest if you were to break it down by by age and by gender um, so the highest uh, the, the longest average run uh, for women globally was four point seven miles and that was in the forty to forty nine age group the longest average run for any age group of men was from the was five point five miles and was from the forty to forty nine age group the longest Average run for women in the United States uh, also went to the 40 to 49 age group with 4.7 miles, and the longest average run for men in the United States went to the 40 to 49 age group, 5.2 miles on average. So clearly, we run the world. Right. Those of us who are in the 40 to 49 age group. So nice try, That's 30 right. to 39 Maybe year olds, but but you just can't quite be us. <laughs> <laughs>
1: no. Very. Hey, I'll take it. That means our best days are ahead of us. Yeah, so.
0: yeah, yeah. I got a few. I got, I got a little more. A little more time in the in the 40 to 49 crew. So yeah, very good. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's talk about some of some other research. So I, uh, I'm glad we got to talk about the Strava stuff because this is so fun. And, and there's so much more out there about it too. I mean, we only t- scratched the surface of some of the stuff too. So by all means, check it out and then go on our Facebook page and let us know what, what was your favorite factoid that emerged in there. Um, let, me, uh, let me give two quick pieces of research that I found here, um, one of which is just kind of interesting and then the other one is useful. Um, so the interesting one has to do with some recent research on the shape of the pro cycling peloton. Go ahead.
1: George, I to say, that's what people say about this podcast. One of us is useful and the other one is interesting.
0: <laughs> right on, yeah. We won't say which is which. So, very good. Uh, so, so there was some recent research on the, on, on the, the shape of the pro cycling peloton. And uh, this is the interesting one. Uh, and now... Now, the peloton in cycling um, is basically the group of cyclists. And if you see the pro-cycling peloton, the World Tour cycling peloton, the Tour de France uh, peloton, they are extremely, extremely close together. Much closer together than, say... Uh, you or I, Patrick, or people on our level or people that are our caliber of athletes would would, would be riding to one another if we went out for a group ride. Um, the the world tour cyclists tend to be super duper close to one another. And of course, that's for drafting purposes. Um, you can save 30% or more power by by drafting. And so they tend to stay really, 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 really close to one another. But what they found by looking at the the shape of the peloton is that the peloton tends to be kind of a diamond shape you tend to have one person then two people then three people then four people then five people until eventually it fills out the entire road and so you have this kind of pointed diamond shape Um, and so there's a researcher guy named jesse belden Um, he's a researcher at the navy undersea warfare center Uh, And he was recently at a meeting here in Atlanta um, for the American Physical Society's division of fluid dynamics. And he just explained a lot of his work that was kind of interesting. And so he's actually a cyclist. He's a a fan of the Tour de France. And he noticed that that the way that the pro cycling peloton tends to move is kind of the way that like different flocks of birds and different schools of fish and stuff actually move as well. And so he, he wondered if potentially they could find out um, the way that that groups move uh, um, in order to inform things uh about like self driving cars and crowd management and power grid and stuff like that now i didn 't realize until I actually read this article that studying the way that animals swarm and sort of crowd mentality and swarm behavior is is sort of a booming field right now because of self driving cars and crowd management and all that sort of thing but anyway. So imagine people riding in a group. You ride really, really close in order to draft, but you don't want to get too close to the people around you or else you'll crash, of course. Um and there's two possible ways you can crash, either from running into somebody in front of you or to running into the people beside you. Okay? And yeah. so 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 they we tend to form these diamond shapes. And so so Belden and his colleagues, they wanna try and figure out, okay. Given that, those, that that you're trying to draft, but you're trying not to crash, why do we end up in these diamond shapes here? Um, and again, to use that to inform some of the things about, about crowd behavior and stuff. And so they, they looked at a bunch of different hours of aerial footage of the Tour de France, and they noticed that the peloton, it moves very fluidly, and there were two types of waves that would go through the peloton. The first were longitudinal waves, which would move back and forth along the peloton from the front to the back, and it was caused when a rider would slow or to break suddenly or to go around a corner, and it was almost like an accordion effect, right? That kind of, kind of moving front to back kind of wave that would cause the, 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 the group to kind of bubble and move. Um, the second are transverse waves, which go from side to side, so when a rider will swerve left... The next guy to him will swerve left a little bit more and the next guy to him will swerve left a little bit more or something like that, right? They're avoiding obstacles or trying to find a more advantageous position, whatever it happens to be. Um, And so what ultimately Belden has concluded by uh, looking at all of these different aerial footages is that... The diamond shape is actually a result of vision, of, of riders being able to want to see as much as they possibly can. Um, they said the longitudinal waves that were triggered by a rider slowing or braking spread twice as fast as the transverse waves triggered by, by riders were moving side to side. And Belden said, quote, "...by orienting themselves in this diamond structure, the rider immediately in front of me is now offset farther away." and my two flanking neighbors are within plus or minus 30 degrees. That's the optimal range for near peripheral field of vision. A rider in this position will have more time to react to sudden braking motion by the rider in the front, and riders shifting side to side are less of an immediate threat because there's more space to maneuver to avoid collision. So, in other words, we form this way because we're trying to leave more room in the front, but less room on the sides. And, and the interesting thing about it is that we don't necessarily do this consciously, we don't say, oh, okay, it's fine for me to be right on top of somebody next to me, but I want to leave a little bit more room on the front. We don't do that consciously. We do it in an unconscious fashion, and, and because that's what, we're in, what, that's what we're doing, we end up forming these kind of diamond formations. Kind of cool, right? Hmm. Yeah, that's it.
1: really interesting. I mean, it, it, it kind of gets back to human psychology. I mean, we... We fear the threat we know about, but maybe we don't feel the threat that we aren't even aware exists to some degree.
0: Right, right, because ev- be. every cyclist has crashed by running into the wheel of the person in front of them. Or by the person in front of them mm-hmm. hits the brakes and, and you, you rub wheels and, and you go down. Like every cyclist has had that happen before. Um, and, but very few of us have ever had a crash come from the side. Like like somebody just swings into you and, and suddenly you all crash, right? Um, and so since, mm-hmm. that, since that, that risk from the front is so much more than the risk from the side, and we know that almost intuitively, but, but, but we know it unconsciously, we tend to form these diamond formations um, in, in, in a way that's, that's automatic, that's not even thoughtful. Um, and that's, that's kind of fascinating. Um, so like I said, Belden and several others are swarm or or, are studying the way that swarms actually work like this because that will help inform, okay, self-driving cars. Um, what, what sort of things do we need to keep in mind when we have a road filled with self-driving cars, all of which need to interact with one another the same way that the Tour de France Peloton interacts with one another. Um, so kind of some cool stuff, right? Um all right now let me give you the practical one <laughs> Um so the, the the practical one has to do with running um and uh I know that you know a lot of people and I know a lot of people um who have had iliotibial band syndrome it's really common among uh among uh, triathletes because swimming, cycling, and running all can potentially contribute to iliotibial band syndrome, um, but I've probably known it most among people who are just straight runners. Um, and There was a, a, an article that came across my desk just this morning, as a matter of fact. Um, an athlete that I coach uh, pointed me to it, um, and it's from uh, the Journal of Sports Biomechanics in 2012, um, and it was called Step Width Alters Iliotibial Band Strain During Running. It was by three researchers at the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse um, and Iowa State University, Stacey Mearden, Samuel Campbell, and Timothy Derrick. And what they did is they looked at the way that people's stride width could actually influence their iliotibial band syndrome. Um, you know, we pay a lot of attention to like stride frequency and like foot strike and things like that when we're talking about the way that people run in their gait, but we don't tend to talk all that much about the width of your stride. Now, the width of your stride, you can, you can they measure it by saying, okay, if you look at like somebody's footprints, how far apart are their heels or or how far apart are their feet when their feet strike and, and they're totally on the ground, right? And there are some people who run right. with, with what you could actually call a crossover gait that they almost run like supermodels on a stage to where literally their feet cross the midline every single time they run back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Um, so what they did is they, they took 15 recreational runners doing normal running um, and then they had the runners increase or decrease their stride width by adopting a wider or a narrow stance and they recorded the changes in their running uh, mechanics. And the difference between the wide, narrow and the normal stride width was about 3.5 inches each way. And so we're not talking about a radical change. You're not talking about somebody like running you know with their legs completely spread apart here. Um, but you're talking about somebody running with a you know not crossing the midline and then crossing the midline as well. Uh, and the data is not that big much of a surprise, actually. It showed that a narrower stride uh, create uh, width created more stress on the iliotibial band. And that makes sense. If your right foot is crossing your midline and going all the way over in front of the left side of your body, um, but you're still traveling in a straight line down the road, that means that, that you're going to be putting a lot of stress on your iliotibial band. And of course, the same thing with your left foot crossing over to your right. Um, and so, so yeah, that could cause a whole lot more stress. Um, and so, the, the the takeaway from this is that people with a crossover gait like that are more potentially more susceptible to iliotibial band syndrome. Um, and so what does that mean? Um, it doesn't mean, and we should be clear on this, it doesn't mean that you should consciously narrow your stride for your whole run. You shouldn't be like, "Oh crap, I need to, you know, widen my stance and then like run with your legs completely spread apart for an entire run." You know, you and I Patrick have talked at length about how people shouldn't consciously change their gait um, because that could lead to injury. However, there are a few things you can do. Number 1, um, you can try and run in a straight path left Austin. And so that means that that if you're running on a treadmill a lot, which only takes you on a single straight path, um, that could potentially be, be harmful if you have a crossover gait because you never have the opportunity to not cross over. You're going to be crossing over every single step and it's going to be super repetitive. It does mean that if you run on trails where there's like a lot of twists and turns and there's places where you are forced to not run in that very straight line, it's a positive thing. So that's one thing you can do is try and run in a straight path a little bit less often. Number two, try and widen it just a little bit at a time. So like if you're running down a road and there's a painted line on the road, you can run like for 20 steps, not a lot, just for like 20 steps and just try and make sure that you're not crossing the center line. You know, put yourself right over that painted line and, and rather than crossing back over the line, back and forth, like you naturally want to, you can make sure that your footfall actually stays on each side of the line. Um, and the third thing you can do, of course, is you can strengthen your glutes and you can increase your mobility in your adductors, um, which is probably the best way to go about it. Your adductors are your inner thighs. Um, one way to do this is by making sure that you do good straight lunges when you're in the weight room and when you're doing your strength work, which you've talked about a little bit before here. So um, not uh, not mimicking the, that, that crossing the center line there. Um, I often will see people, and I've, told them to stop doing it at the track before uh people crossing the center line when they're when they're doing lunges um and uh that's that's putting bad running form into your muscle memory and that's not a good thing to do you need to be be striding in a in a a straight fashion here and this is kind of showing some of the uh the the reasons why thoughts on this one patrick
1: yes this really kind of plays into one of our our big themes in this podcast and that is that You know, when people come to us and say, hey, you know, my T-band's hurting or my calf is hurting, et cetera, there tends to be something in your stride that's very small Mm -hmm. that, you know, may not have a big impact with an individual stride or even a few or, you know, a few runs, but over time really starts to build and put unnecessary strain or strain on a muscle or muscle group that your body just can't handle or that that muscle group can't handle, Mm -hmm. and in, in terms of treatment itself, obviously we talk about it all the time. You you can't just say, all right, now that you know that you cross over your feet, for example, now focus on you know running straight or keeping your your stride straight, right? Because that, when you try to force feed the issue, that almost crosses even bigger issues because your body's is overcompensating for a reason. It's it's kind of uh, you know it's crossing over your stride for a reason, right. um, and there's probably some other you know change like the abductors or, or maybe hip strength or something like that. So, I mean, the big takeaway is I think if, if you're someone who's ever struggled with IT band syndrome um, or with, you know, an I, IT band strain, to, to look at your own stride and do some kind of self-reflection and say, yeah. is this something that I do or notice it myself when I'm running? And if so, take some of the steps that you mentioned to try to mitigate that, because that's also an, an injury that kind of continues to pop up. Yeah. Some, some injuries are relatively um, – Ad hoc, or that they happen like once and then they're they're done. Right. But that, the, the IT ban, once someone has you know starts to complain about an IT band, they tend to keep bringing that up over and over, you know, throughout various training cycles. So that's something to kind of know and be aware of early on, and then try to mitigate quickly.
0: Yeah, I agree. I I think that's the biggest takeaway is that if you are someone who who has struggled with iliotibial band syndrome on multiple occasions, consider this. Well, I think that wraps us up. Patrick, what do you think? I like it. Well, all right, everybody. Get back to it and make sure you upload to Strava afterwards. And we'll, a year from now, we'll talk about the 2018 data.
1: That's right. And Make sure you include an emoji and a mention of beer, coffee, cakes, or, coff- or cookies.
0: Perfect. Very good. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, everybody. And that'll do it for another edition of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. Once again, you can reach out to me, George, at george at itlcoaching.com. You can reach out to Patrick, patrick at itlcoaching.com. You can send us an email at pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter, at Pleasant Podcast, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. Don't forget to reach out to our sponsors as well. You can find ITO Coaching and Performance at itlcoaching.com at ITL Coaching on Twitter, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Coaching and Performance. Finally, of course, Blue Pineapple Travel. You can find them at facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, bluepineappletravel.com, and on Instagram, instagram.com slash bluepineappletravel. Thanks again for joining us, everybody. On behalf of Patrick Ollander, this is George Darden. We'll see you next time on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.